Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you've joined us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Grab your stool. Jim Garrity's actually not here today. He's uh, headed out to the West Coast. He'll be back on Tuesday. Rob Long, contributing editor at National Review Online, co-founder of Ricochet, co-host of the Glop podcast on Ricochet is with us, and apparently he's dropping things in studio Yeah, as I well. just dropped my glasses, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I, w- I was just so shocked to hear that Jim was going to the West Coast or that he wasn't showing up for his job today. Uh, what is he doing there? Was he going to be on a – he's probably going to be on – is he going to be on a show? He's actually attending the Koch Brothers Summit. <laughs> well, you know what? At least that's on brand. I'll, I'll, I'll stay with that. There you good go. for him. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, they got a big win uh, I guess it was the uh, end of 2018 with the uh, criminal justice reform, so we'll see what's yeah. on their agenda this time, but uh, he'll have a full report next week. Rob, we've got uh, good, bad, and crazy martinis today, so let's start with the good, and it looks like Brexit uh, might be in the rearview mirror very, very soon. This is Politico. Boris Johnson on Wednesday, he's the prime minister you might remember in the UK, hailed the safe passage through Parliament of the law needed to take the UK out of the European Union. In a statement issued after the withdrawal agreement bill was passed by both the House of Commons and the House of Lords, the UK prime minister said, quote, at times it felt like we would never cross the Brexit finish line, but we've done it. Now we can put the rancor and division of the past three years behind us and focus on delivering a bright, exciting future with better hospitals and schools, safer streets and opportunity spread to every corner of our country. And uh, this, of course, Follows Theresa May's repeated failed attempts to to get this done. But right. uh, parliamentary elections late last year certainly made a big difference, a big, big win uh, for conservatives there. So um, uh, after, what are we now, closing in on four years since the summer? Almost sun- four years. Four sun- years. It'll be four years in June. Yeah, summer 2016 was uh, right. when the Brexit vote happened. So we're finally here. <laughs> uh, we're probably getting new trade deals with the EU and the UK <laughs> out of this, Rob. So uh, we should be happy that it's uh, finally done here, right? Well, I think it's instructive in two ways. I mean, as you put it, like four years ago, the people of Britain asked a question and they answered it. You know, it's always that old the old adage is true, which is never ask a question if you don't know what the answer is going to be. And uh, people asked the question to the British public and they expected them to say, let's stay in the uh, European Union. And instead, they said, let's get out. And they, uh, the politicians in Britain and sort of the intelligentsia in Britain spent about four years trying to convince themselves and others that, the, the British people were just about to change their mind. And they asked them again, they would say something else. And that the people consistently re-emphasized what they wanted, which was to be out of the European Union. And it kind of just shows you two things. One, you never think you're smarter than the, than the mandate of the people. That's uh, it's a, a recipe for political disasters, the Labor Party's found out. And two, if you're going to scare people, if you're, if you're a politician or a policymaker and you want to frighten people, which is what the sort of the uh, remainers uh, wanted to do. Don't try to frighten them with something they've already experienced, right? So the frightening thing, I mean, people say, if we if we leave the EU, it'll be a financial economic disaster, and they 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 painted this horrible picture of a Britain that's not a member of, not a member of the EU. Whereas most British voters remember not being in the EU. It wasn't that long ago. There was this strange disconnect between trying to terrify people about something they already knew what it'd be like. They said, oh, it's sort of like be sort of." You know, like like life under John Major, not bad. Um, and and so that was it was incredibly strange. Uh, it just turns out that people wanted a thing, and now the politicians have to make the thing work, which is not going to be that hard. You have an incredibly powerful appetite in the United States from American government, 
to use a, a, a British trade deal as a cudgel against the EU. Um, you know, the British, the, the, the British economy, British trade positions actually increased because it's now seen as a useful piece of leverage for both sides. I mean, Britain's going to get some pretty good deals out of this. No, absolutely. So what's the American uh, lesson out of this? I, I guess uh, a lot of these parallels apply because <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's very it's very difficult for America because, you know, we haven't been stuck in the same fight for the past four years at all. No, uh, no, we've moved on. <laughs> we we put the rancor and the bitterness behind us, just as Boris Johnson wants us to do. Uh, the, 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 what we're seeing, we're seeing it unfold right now in D.C., of course, is a bunch of people who just did not like the outcome in 2016. And they have been trying to figure out a way to make that outcome illegitimate. And um, you can see now that they just seem, they seem to be obsessed with whatever new thing they can find to sort of undermine the authority of the constitutionally elected president of the United States. Like him, hate him, um, support him, get a vote for him, not vote for him. It doesn't matter. He took the oath of office. He won fair and square. And the, the trick is to figure out a way to compromise with him and to sort of bend him to your will. That's what every Congress has done. Since time immemorial, you have a president from another party, you just try to bend them to your will. And, and mostly that's, that's awfully successful. Um, you know, John Boehner and the Republicans in the House under Barack Obama did a pretty good job of that when they took over the House. I don't know. My guess is that it's going to be the same outcome. The people will once again say, no, you weren't listening. Uh, well, so we'll have to say it a little louder, and it will. Pro- it could be the. It could be a. It could be a very surprising morning for the Democrats. Just as a very surprising morning for the Labor, a government in December. Yeah, it, it certainly could be, especially when you get to points where uh, they're they're wringing their hands that the general that uh, is responsible <laughs> yeah. for killing hundreds of American troops uh, in Iran uh, was killed in uh, Iraq. Yeah, right, I mean, right. I mean, how many how many people do you have to try and find who you're going to side with against Trump? When you've gotten a General Soleimani is somehow superior to Trump, that's a that's an issue. And I, I just heard earlier today that uh, Kim Jong-un has kicked his sister out of the cabinet. Remember at the Olympics a couple of years ago when she gave the side eye to Mike Pence at the at the Winter oh, Games yeah, in right. South Korea and the left was like, oh, you go, girl. I mean, uh, who, who, <laughs> who are they going to side with, with the president against in this world if the North Koreans and the Iranians are somehow the good guys? <laughs> Exactly. And also in, in North Korea, when you're kicked out of the cabinet, you don't go and write a book and appear <laughs> on the view and do stuff like that. No, you sort of I think you know, like he straps you to a cannon or something. I mean, it's a very, very medieval way of like it's Game of Thrones over there. So it's not it's not it's nothing we want to emulate. But look, it's all it's it, it is entirely the same uh, uh, ish, issue, I think. Uh, which is that they can't believe that the people did this thing. So they're going to try to scare the people for the next you know, six, six months. But you can't scare the American voter with the I'd specter, the evil, awful specter of a Trump presidency, because we already know what it's like. It's chaotic and it's a little it's messy and it's embarrassing. And look, I'm no fan, but it's not a disaster. Three to point three percent unemployment, whatever it is, is not a disaster. An economy growing at where it's growing and a, and a, and a stock market soaring the way it's soaring. It's not a disaster. you got to scare people another way, um, which is one of the reasons why scaring people is a very, very dangerous and probably the worst possible political move you can make. You, you should just try to win on something else. Um, and it's not as if there's a shortage of those things. It's just the Democrats prefer prefer to say that we're going to enter into a chaotic and um, nightmarish uh, dystopic dictatorship when, you know, you just walk outside. It doesn't seem that way at all. Well, Rob, you've talked about how people know what a Trump presidency would look like. So 
we can still scare people with what a Bernie Sanders presidency <laughs> yeah, would look right. like. And that's our transition to our bad martini today. Uh, a lot of polls out lately, some state, some national. Obviously, yeah. the early state polls are the ones which uh, probably draw the, the most attention. WBUR, Survey of Likely Voters in the New Hampshire Democratic Primary. Uh, last month, in December, it was Buttigieg 18, Biden 17, Sanders 15, Warren, 12, and everybody else kind of as an also ran. Now, just a month later, Sanders, 29, Buttigieg hasn't really moved, 17, Biden, 14, Warren, 13, and everybody else pretty far distant after that. So Bernie's gone from third place to first place by 12 points. And CNN's got a national poll out showing him jumping from December to January, down six to Biden to up three. And so I don't know if uh, Democrats see him as the the purest progressive or they don't like the way that Elizabeth Warren tried to drop the misogynist bomb on him at the last second before the voting starts. But uh, what's going on here? You know, it's it's hard to believe that Bernie's that far ahead, especially in New Hampshire, which is sort of a, you know, tends to be the fairly sensible um, down the middle, middle of the road kind of primary voter, both both for. Republicans and Democrats, except for the last cycle for Republicans, they, t- they tend to be sort of predictable in a lot of ways. I would still say that I, I understand the appeal of Bernie because Bernie is a thing. You already know exactly the kind of campaign he's going to run. You're not worried that Bernie's going to say something um, uh, uh, crazy or weird. He doesn't have any baggage on the left, really, that's hurting him. I mean, you have some Elizabeth Warren uh, supporters who think he's a, a misogynist. Although, to be honest, when you're talking about blue-collar voters who are really going to be put the next president in the White House, a little misogyny might actually be, you know, we, we have a misogynist president who won the three important states. So it's not as if that's going to be uh, poison at the at the box office, as we say in Hollywood. I would say the scary thing about a Bernie uh, candidacy for the Democrats is that there is no evidence that people who don't like Trump don't like him enough that they're willing to go far left. There's a lot of evidence that people who don't like Trump would like to go to the middle. But the one great thing about Bernie Sanders, you can say, is he ain't in the middle. The guy who had his honeymoon in Moscow and took you know, adoring photographs of the chandeliers in the subway, he ain't in the middle. So uh, it seems like a very strange choice. And I think you're starting to see the crack up happen in the media when they sort of start slowly realize that there's a that there's a, a high degree of likelihood that a that a far left candidate is going to win uh, the nomination, which which I think will mean two things. One is we'll stop reading about how crazy Biden is on the stump and the, and the latest stupid thing he said. And we're going to start reading a lot about how how bright and thoughtful and passionate uh, Pete Buttigieg is, because they're the only two, I think, that if you are a Democrat in the media, which is to say, which is I repeat myself. Um, <laughs> the, the only two you really think can match can, can can stack up. On the other hand, it's I mean I know it's a bad martini, but it's a great one if you just love American theater because we're if 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 he does win the nomination, it is going to be Brooklyn versus Queens, and it's going to be amazing. I mean these two guys, Trump and and Bernie, are. I mean, they are from the same I and mean, they're from they're from the two competing boroughs, but they have the same way of talking, the same way of the same pugilistic way of doing that. Those debates are going to be, as the kids say, lit AF. 
So, obviously, you got a lot of folks on the right who think if Bernie is the nominee, and as we know from 2016, the DNC is going to pretty much do whatever they can to make sure that's not the case. Right. But if he is, uh, on the one hand, you got a lot of folks on the right saying he's too far out there. Even with the Democrats moving that far out there, right. uh, he's too far, and, and that's going to redound to Trump's benefit. But, of course, Trump has high negatives, and you got a lot of folks on the left and maybe even in, among independents who are in the anybody-but-Trump camp. So uh, is this Trump's greatest wish if Bernie's the nominee because it's an easier road? Or is America in peril because the uh, voters <laughs> might go with them just because he's not Trump? Well, look, America's always in peril. Let's not act like America's not in peril. America, America's almost always uh, on, on the precipice. That's why it's America. That's why it's great. Uh, the, the game the Democrats are playing is we think that the 12 percent, you know, Trump's, Trump's a weak president, right? He doesn't have that much. His support's pretty – it's very solid, but it's not high. So the Democrats are saying that the people there in, you know, in between, the great middle, the people who decide these things, they're going to hate Trump enough that they're going to buy anything, anything but Trump, anyone but Trump, even if it's Bernie, even if it's Elizabeth Warren, even if it's somebody saying, I'm going to take your health care, I'm going to raise your taxes, I'm going to give free a college to, um, to illegal immigrants. In fact, that there aren't going to be any illegal immigrants because we're not going to enforce the border, right? So – they think that you hate Trump so much, you're going to say, OK, I'll take all of that. And the Trump side thinks that you hate Trump just enough, but not so much. You kind of like some of the policies. It's a style issue you have with him. You wish he wasn't such a pig, but he is. So what? Under no circumstances do you hate him enough that you're willing to make that big of a leap. You might, though, make the Biden leap. You might go for everybody's lovable doting grandpa who is liberal but kind of liberal in a acceptable old-timey way and that is the calculation both parties both campaigns are making and i suspect that deep down all the democrats who are thinking about it and all the republicans who are thinking about it know that the trump side is correct uh and we are pretty sure we know the trump side is thinking that way because of all the trouble they're now in for trying to take out joe biden early on or trying to trying to replay the campaign they played in 2016 where they can they can very successfully paint their opponent as corrupt. And I suspect that was that was a, you know, whether you, you agree with it or not, whether you think he, he should be impeached or not, that was a very smart strategy because I think it is a kind of a Biden. Biden's the only guy in the field right now who can convince those people that who are convincible that he's not an insane a liberal and that he's an acceptable alternative, a, a non-crazy, non-communist alternative to Trump, put it that way. That's where we are in American politics right now. So it sounds like you're expecting Joe Biden to get rid of the no malarkey on the side of his bus and on one side say not insane and the other side not a communist and that's the path to victory? I I, I actually (laughs) honestly believe if you listen, you look at his campaign messaging, especially starting in the first of the year, it will be I'm not – the subtext will be I am not a communist, which – we are now in a place that Joe McCarthy said we were in the 50s, where we have communists running for the president of the United States and very close to being in the White House. I mean, Bernie Sanders is many things. He is also a communist. Yes, yes, <laughs> he is. Just, yeah, so. yeah, he kept saying, go back to the 
20, 30 years ago when I said a woman could be president. You can also go back 20, 30 years and hear him talking about how great all the communists are in Cuba and Nicaragua and all sorts of other oh, places yeah, around yeah. the world. Yeah, but uh, He's a communist. He is, he, is, you know? he is a communist. Joe McCarthy was right. He was just about 50 years too soon. Oh, man. Oh, man. So as you can tell, we've got you covered here on the political front, uh, whether it's a super wokeness, uh, accusations of misogyny. But if you want to find uh, a couple other voices that are good on these subjects, you can find the Mock and Daisy Common Sense cast. Uh, they're two ladies, Mock and Daisy, who also go by Chicks on the Right. And uh, each week they talk about things that matter to you, from parenting to social media, the dangers of political correctness, the importance of marriage, yes, men, and even family values in this crazy world. They're two ladies who are smart. They're really funny. They like to laugh a lot. They're conservative moms. And uh, it comes with a dash of politics. Often they'll see the political headline and and take it off on their own special way and their tangents. But uh, if we really want to make America great again, they say we need to start in our own home. So to find out more about the Mock and Daisy Common Sense cast, head to chicksontheright.com or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. Rob, let's go to our crazy martini now. And for oh, good. parents who are, because uh, yeah, because the last one wasn't crazy enough that a communist is uh, likely to be the nominee, or at least could be the nominee of a major political party in the United States. Uh, if any parents are listening here, you got little ears. There is going to be a four-letter word as we quote a quote here. So just so you're aware of that. Uh, impeachment is still going on. And uh, yesterday was day one of three where the Democratic House managers are laying out their case. 24 hours of Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler and Hakeem Jeffries and uh, the whole gang there uh, laying out the, the case for the two articles of impeachment. And uh, as Adam Schiff and the gang continue, you, of course, have the mainstream media uh, trying harder than ever uh, to tell you that they're uh, delivering an open and shut case. And uh, it's really just obstruction on the part of the White House and Republican senators as to the only reason why this couldn't possibly result in a conviction and a removal from office. Uh, The crazy example of that, or the craziest example of that, comes from former Clinton White House spokesman Joe Lockhart. Like most people in that position, he never left town. He's still here. He's a lobbyist, and now he's a contributor on CNN. And uh, here is his tweet that went out a little past 2 Eastern time On Wednesday. And here's where the potty word comes in. He says, quote, overheard convo between two Republican senators who only watch Fox News. Is this stuff real? I haven't heard any of this before. I thought it was all about a server. If half the stuff Schiff is saying is true, we're up Schitt's Creek. Hope the White House has exculpatory evidence. 38,000 likes, almost 10,000 retweets. Ten minutes later, Lockhart tweets out, Okay, maybe I made up the convo, but you know that's exactly what they're thinking. That's gotten up now to 10,000 likes and 1,000 retweets, but uh, as of yesterday, those numbers were far worse. So, uh, Rob, I'm sure that's what he wishes they were thinking, but uh, in an era when uh, the slightest little slip-up can cost you your job in a number of places, as far as we know, Joe Lockhart's still in good standing over at CNN. Well, right. I mean, what do you expect? I mean, this is exactly what he thinks the Republic. I mean, what's amazing to me is only true Democratic partisans, which is, again, to say everybody in the media and Joe Lockhart's friends, only they would read that dialogue and think, oh, I bet he really did overhear that. I mean, it, like it was it's so mustache twirling. It's almost <laughs> near the evil cackle. Boy, we are in very, you know, it's almost like when you when you see the um, 
in the Simpsons when they have the uh, when they do that funny thing with the uh, Springfield Republican Club, and it's you know it's in Mr. Burns's office and Dracula's there, people are there, <laughs> and it's how can we hurt the poor today? You know that's like um, so it's the liberals kind of dream of what uh, of what conservatives would be talking about. I am not licensed to practice psychology in the state of New York where I am now, but there is a thing called projection. And it's a thing called wish fulfillment. And it's when you make up a story that you wish was true, even though you know it's not true. And it's usually the opposite of what is true. And in fact, what people are saying, American people are saying, viewers are saying, and certainly Republican senators are saying, is, is that all he's got? This is not, why are we here? This is a complete waste of time. And uh, there's this get a psychological crisis kind of trauma going on on the left where they're suddenly realizing this is not going to work and it's not even really going to energize their base. Um, I mean, I remember, I mean, I'm how old I am. I remember when Clinton was impeached, that impeachment, the country stopped. If you took a call or made a call in your office during the day, you could hear it in the background. People said things like, hey, are you watching this? And we all knew what this was. This thing is, I don't know. I asked my mom, like, I, I called her today. So are you are you listening to the, are you watching the impeachment? Because no, I'm just watching Rachel Ray. <laughs> like, nobody's watching this thing. It's a complete, and, and so this desperate need to turn it into something dramatic, including this dramatic villain dialogue, is just, it's sad. It's a sad thing. The, 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 the point about the re retweets and the, and, the, and the likes, those are people who would, they would, they don't care that it's not true. They don't, they don't care that it's true. It made them feel good. It was a little bit of a it was a it was a little bit of a good feeling to think that, yes, Republican senators are still evil. Uh, yes, we are winning. Yes, you're, all your chips are sunk. You know, it was like uh, it, it made them feel good. And that was the goal of it. It was, uh, you know, cheerleading propaganda, fan service for the Joe Lockhart CNN side. Problem is, of course, real life isn't the Joe Lockhart CNN side. It's something else. Um uh, and I, for one, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I don't want to get in the way of if if the other side is entering its delusional phase, it's sort of, you know, morphine-induced dreamscape where everything that's happening is happening just as they want it. Okay, that's fine. I'll let them do that. They can have a nice, nice sleep while uh, you know American people go on their business. And I don't know, maybe Donald Trump uh, passes a middle-class tax cut, like he says he's going to. All that, all that sounds good to me. Yeah, you know, you, you hate to see people go off on these uh, psychological benders, but if if they're going to do it, they might as well do it in a year divisible by four, right? Exactly right. And if it soothes them, I mean, I understand they're they're in in some kind of psychic pain. If this is the if this is what they need, the the, the defenses they need to get through the next month, month, two months, six months, maybe nine months, who knows? Uh, then then okay, I'm not going to get in your way. I'm, it's not not for me to tell Joe Lockhart that what he needs to do is to sit up straight and watch what's really happening. If he wants to uh, imagine and, and conjure up fake narratives that you that that you and I both know aren't happening in the Republican Senate, he can go right ahead. Uh, as soon as I saw that, uh, I, I, I saw the two uh, tweets together, so I didn't know that the the first one had gone out until I saw the second one. Uh, and, and looking back on it, I was immediately thinking, "Wow, even Aaron Sorkin would call that unrealistic." But uh, Greg Gutfeld over at Fox was even more brutal, saying, "Don't become a screenwriter, Joe. You suck at dialogue." <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. And it's it's sad, too, because like because I know what he's going for, you know, I mean, I it, but I think when Aaron Sorkin, when it when people say that even Aaron Sorkin wouldn't write that dialogue, it's 
I mean, you know, stick with your day job. Which is probably making a lot of money at whatever lobbying. Yeah, right. I mean, like, uh, again, no tears, right? No tears. (laughs) Right, exactly. Rob, always a pleasure. Glad to be with you today. I'm sure we'll do it again soon. Have a good one. Hey, you too. Thanks. Rob Long is the co-founder of Ricochet. He's the uh, co-host of the Glop podcast on Ricochet, and he's a contributing editor at National Review Online. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a great review. We always appreciate those. And tune in again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.